Is it niche or is it niche? I think technically it's both, according to Google. Welcome to the first recorded Hacker Hangouts, and I'm excited to be talking with my friend Gowrie, talking about our, our niche, where mine was more on pen testing side. Gowrie, yours was more on, what, virtualization? I guess you could say virtualization. At first, it was more on vulnerability research, but then I realized I didn't really like that. So, uh, yeah, I went down more of the emulation and virtualization realm. Was that like always your goal to go into virtualization? Like that's what you studied for? That's what that's what you were born to do? Or is that something you kind of stumbled into? I mean, I accidentally my way all the way into computer science in the first place, if you will. I, mean, I remember as a kid, I uh, got a little exposure to software development, and then I rapidly was like, I want nothing to do with computers. And so I joined the Navy. And then I dislocated my shoulder, and uh, I had a choice of go out to sea or pick up a, you know, a keyboard. And I was like, well, I joined the Navy, but I don't want to go to sea, so I'm going to pick up a keyboard. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's how I ended up in that, in that space of doing software development and, and vulnerability research. I actually started off as a, uh, a defensive analyst just doing like network analysis and trying to find bad guys on the network, if you will, and then moved okay. my way towards uh, vulnerability research and yeah, uh, found my way to a computer science program and started doing virtualization. But to answer your question, I always liked, you know, I think as kids, at least in our age, we used emulators as kids. We played, you know, my first thing, like one of the first video games I ever played on the computer was actually, um, uh, Pokemon. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was the version that I didn't have. I think I had the red version. I wanted to play the blue version. So I booted it up on the computer and got to play it on the computer. Um, and that always interested me. And so when I had the opportunity to be part of writing emulators, not necessarily video game emulators, but, you know, real, um, real computer emulators, x86, PowerPC, what have you. I jumped at the chance and dug in and learned everything I could. That's a pretty big shift. Here, I'm going to move us to split screen. Is That's a pretty big shift going from I'm like in, intrusion detect. It was like almost like incident response, it sounds like, where you were actually looking at the traffic, seeing like wait, looking for like signs of advanced persistent threat, looking for so signs that a system has been popped and is doing phone home. Like, Is that the type of incident response you were doing? Yeah, so we were, I would say we were doing distance inst incident response, right? So, okay. uh, you know, we're the people on the wire. You know, most people are familiar with corporate networks. Whenever you sign on, you click a thing that says you consent to monitoring. Um, and that's so that people like me can go digging through traffic and not have to worry about, you know, an email that flies across the wire or something mm -hmm. like that and, and seeing content and such. So, um, yeah, you know, that was the idea. And, you know, we got some massive amount of, you know, got like a span port or something dumping traffic to a store. And then you start digging through it, looking for indications of bad guys, like, yeah, like um, indicator compromise like, or something like that. Yeah. So like one of the easiest ways to do this is just to look for like beaconing activity, something mm -hmm. that's trying to phone home to something that's not there. And then like switching up the HTTP, you know, like what website it's going to constantly. What made you switch? From that, because I mean, there's people who obviously spend love incident response like that was one I, I never really wanted to go in because I didn't want to like I knew friends in that field who would be like up to like 3 a.m. And I feel like their health was failing them because <laughs> they were like constantly getting bombarded with it. 
Well, I mean, that's definitely part of it. Like, uh, and it's one of the, the jokes I like to tell is that like in those situations, uh, when you're that person, morale is everything, right? Because you can't tell the difference between an analyst who's bad at their job and they're just being nothing to find, right? Um, because, you know, it, you're basically saying go find a needle in a needle stack, right? Like yeah. any given packet in this giant multi-terabyte, 40, 100 petabyte, you know, size store, any any one packet in that, and that packet's, you know, kilobytes in size, if if even a kilobyte is going to be your indicator of compromise. And it's it's kind of a nightmare, right? Like, um, so my flip over to that, how I, you know, why I jumped over, uh, the answer to that is because the Navy forces you to change jobs every three years, uh, which is horrendous and unsustainable in the realm of computer security, but they do it. And, uh, you know, they're it's okay not at unique. it. It's not unique to the Navy, though, because like General Electric did this type of idea, too. It used to be five years, and then it was three years, where it was one year to learn your current position, one year to excel at it, then one year to move into your next position. I just never... I, that's one of the reasons I left General Electric, was there wasn't a technical track. So you either, pretty much, if you wanted to move up at the company, you are always moving towards management, always a, you know, yeah. always going to be a people leader. That's a very military-esque... That's a very military esque thing. It's the, the military is very much up or out. You're you're mm -hmm. promoting or you're getting out. Pick one. And that was so. that was the thing I didn't like was they eventually made a technical track, but you had I I liked pen testing. I liked ha this form of hacking, and I didn't want to leave it. So you were kind of forced. So you moved from incident response or more like uh, incident detection, and then moved yeah. where. I moved over into a more, you know, vulnerability research uh, area. And that was, you know, where I picked up some small ideas, like understanding how binary exploitation happens uh, in part to be able to defend stuff. You know, you can't be a good defender unless you understand the attacks. And some things don't really have network indications. So you need to understand what's going on in the computer. So, you know, malware reverse engineering, things like that. And I got some training on how to do malware reverse engineering and, and, and such. And that was pretty much the moment I figured out like, oh, I like software development. Like this makes sense to me. I'm going to get out of the Navy. And then I went and got a computer science degree. Uh, so that was my path there. And uh, about halfway through my degree, uh, not halfway, about a year into my degree, I was like, this is going to drive me insane. I need to do some form of real work. Uh, so I called up some old friends, asked for an internship. And, you know, that led into my virtualization uh, path because they had a cool emulation thing that they were doing. And I went, I want my hands on that. I want to understand how it works. I want to dig into it. And I kind of developed my skills concurrently by working through college and also working on that program to the extent that uh, I became a senior dev. And now I would say I understand virtualization as a concept very well. And now you didn't, so like you bounced around is like one of the advice we've given on this channel before is bounce around like, and that's okay. You have to find like that, that, uh, that Venn diagram of here are the things I like doing here are things that make money. And I want to find that middle thing, <laughs> just kind of like I, I see with YouTube. Here's the, here's the videos I like doing. Here's the videos that people actually care to watch. And I'm ultimately trying to find that, that middle zone. And it, it takes bouncing around and trying different things. 
it doesn't really sound like that was intentional, but it kind of ended up happening a little bit. And maybe you would have bounced I mean, again it, if you didn't find what you liked. I think it depends on how you define bouncing around, right? So, like, I spent six years in the Navy, and then I spent eight years at my next job. And I, you know, took me four to five years to get my degree during that eight years. So, was I really bouncing around? I think most people bounce around in the two to four year time frame. So like I was relatively stable in one spot for a long time and I was working on one thing professionally. And it, what's interesting to me on that one is like, it, as you say, it's one thing. Now I know, I know like there's, there's some things you can't talk, talk about, but your main, what you've been on for the longest time is virtualization, which feels yeah like a niche of a niche of a niche which is like well, don't get me wrong virtualization emulation is is this big but that feels like such a small niche yeah i mean i will say that um when i started looking at uh, new opportunities i had realized that i had pigeonholed myself into one particular a set of skills if you will i have a particular set of skills um <laughs> Uh, and when I went to go look for job opportunities, I started looking for job opportunities that were trying to match my particular set of skills. And, uh, that was hard. Like basically there's only four or five real players in this space, right? Like there's, a uh, VMware there is, I guess Cisco does some level of development in this space. There's like QMU developers, although I failed to find anyone that has commercialized QMU support. I know that mm. people build these things within their larger programs, but there's no like that. That one kind of fascinated me. The fact that I couldn't find a company that was like building QMU models as, yeah, as a service, uh, maybe because it's not profitable. I don't know. Um, but then uh, there's like Microsoft has uh, a hypervisor team. Hyper-V is a thing. And Intel, to some extent, has uh, that virtualization, has a virtualization team. And then I believe AWS, because AWS is trying to make, you know, everything rackable and be able to just give yeah. you an instance of anything you want in the cloud. And so those were the opportunities. But then I found uh, a couple of like offshoots in my, in my current position um, that are in the world of virtualization, but not in, not in the traditional like VMware sense, right? Where we're mm -hmm. talking about more academic style virtual definition of virtualization, where the academic definition of virtualization is actually a, the interposition on a complex system, which is to say that like you can draw a virtualization line almost anywhere in the software stack. For the things we've been talking about, it, we're drawing the line at the hardware. And that's where hypervisors and emulators come in. You're either writing an emulator to emulate the entire hardware, that's a type of virtualization. You're still virtualizing the hardware just mm -hmm. with one technique. Or you have a hypervisor that runs on the bare metal and that virtualizes access to real hardware. And that's what you're doing with like KVM and Hyper-V and all those things. Um, you can also draw the line at like the library layer and say, well, I want to virtualize the API to this particular library. And oh, you can basically swap out a library in that same way. And there's there's a bunch of techniques on how to do this. Um, but yeah, so like the definition of virtualization and how you virtualize something, it just means to interpose on a complex system and do something in between, usually by converting the 
uh, user software view of some resource into a backend resource that you control and you're like multiplexing on that thing. What's so interesting about this is as you were talking about the, you would mark different layers and I'm thinking like, this is a tiny niche, but as I'm thinking about it, I'm like even thinking like, okay, like my system is an M1. So M1 runs Rosetta anytime it needs to emulate or virtualize x86. And you start looking, you're like, holy crap, it is, it is actually everywhere. Um, and I never really thought about it that way. So while yeah. this felt like a niche, it, it really is, it touches so many things. And you know, my favorite thing about this area is actually, um, people think this is like new, like this is a new concept to virtual machines have only existed for like 20 years. Now, virtual machines date back to like the sixties, really? right? Like the, <laughs> oh yeah. Like the, the first like design of a virtual machine was like in the sixties, early seventies. And it goes back, like, I think spark even had something, uh, like what, <laughs> ancient, what the ancient stuff. What was the main reason? Well, again, this is maybe like weirdly high level, but it's obviously what's the main reason of virtualization? Like one of the reasons immediately comes to mind is like, oh, I want to be able to virtualize this system or this system or Windows or Linux and like have one system to run my whole network. But like, what at the core, what was the original problem like virtualization was I mean, actually looking to solve? Yeah, so the, the core of virtualization is really you have some resource that might be memory um take virtual memory i don't know how well you understand the concept of virtual memory but take virtual memory we have you know a stick of ram and you can think of a stick of ram as just this like buffer from zero to like hex 4000 let's or hex, you know one one million or whatever whatever four gigabytes is like say you have a four gigabyte stick of ram you can think of it as just one giant buffer but that's not useful because you have to do relatively complex things like if i have chrome that thing's probably using 16 gigabytes of ram because chrome is a monster right um but then if i have another program running in the background well how do i divvy up that physical ram across those two things so like virtualization actually exists whether you're not using a, a virtual machine at all virtualization exists on everybody's computer today uh through the the form of virtual memory and what that is, is we have this page table that allows you to divvy up that uh, mm -hmm. physical RAM and create separate address spaces for separate uh, processes. And now you have uh, better utilization of the underlying RAM where I can, you know, if one thing is using up a ton of memory, I can push cold pages from another process out to disk, and then I can reallocate those pages over into that other uh, other process to run faster. Um, so like that's a form of virtualization. I'm virtualizing memory, hence virtual memory. Um, like so the, the ultimate goal of virtualization is that, is to take some scarce resource and be able to multiplex it for multiple users or multiple pieces of software or multiple you know virtual machines in this case and so you can think of your gpu your gpu has many cuda cores in it you could virtualize access to your gpu at least in the server versions the quadros or whatever so that you have four vms that utilize one quarter of your gpu each like that is a thing right yeah. and like pass through works um at least in the the, the quadros i don't think yeah. this is enabled on the d4 stuff or at least not by default i believe yeah, not natively i think you can actually reflash the 
firmware and uh, you have, you have so, like miners. So that, that is virtualization, right? I am multiplexing access to a single piece of hardware. And there is a bunch of techniques and a bunch of things in the realm of virtualization. That's not the only reason we use it, but that's one of the reasons we use it. Hmm. So I want to I wanna get back to a niche because like virtualization is fascinating. We do an entire stream on it. And that shows sure. like, okay, while this feels like a niche, it's 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 actually quite a bit bigger than that. But you started talking about that you felt pigeonholed within the with virtualization. Do you feel like having a niche is valuable in this industry? Like we call it jack of all trades. I do think at one point you everyone's a jack of all trades at a certain point, then like a master of a few. Do you feel like that pigeonhole held you back in your career? Or like if you could, if you do a do over, would you keep with that? Would you keep selecting a niche? Maybe summing this up, if you were giving advice to someone else who was starting in their career, would you tell them to, to, to niche down to blow up, to like niche down to a specific thing uh, for, for so, their career? Let me, let me put it to you this way um, you can make a lot of money today right now by learning and writing COBOL, right? But there are very few positions that require you to know COBOL, right? So, and, and they're going to be in, probably in the financial industry and really, really ancient machines that just, mm. you know, not internet connected and they just need to work until we can migrate them to new, to newer uh, things. So that's, that's the problem you contend with when you hyper specialize uh, because and that's the most extreme example that I can think of uh, because there's probably only a, a handful of companies that you can realistically work for. Um, what I think I've learned recently is that while I'm, I would say, somewhat specialized in virtualization technology, my exposure to software stacks in general um, I've more specialized on the kernel side and understanding the software hardware boundary. Mm -hmm. So I'm not quite a hardware engineer. Like I have some electronics behind me that I've been poking and prodding at because I, I don't understand, for example, like building a board support package from scratch and, and you know, tossing it over the wire to a little embedded chip. I'm, I'm not that guy. Um, but I do understand how to write a, uh, an operating system, and that's useful. And there's a lot of components within that, right? There's caching, there's virtual memory, there's locks, there's, there's a lot. Of, so the question, and that I've gained by virtue of having to write a virtualization system and maintain a virtualization system. Um, so I think in this sense, I, I don't regret, uh, I, I definitely don't regret regret specializing in this area because I think I was looking at it too narrowly where I actually have a lot of skills that many people have never been required to pick up that are incredibly useful. Being able to write device drivers, being able to understand how the kernel, Linux kernel does memory management and more generally how operating systems do memory management and, and such and a bunch of Linux kernel internals and, and how they work. Um, because by nature of having to launch Linux in a virtual machine and debug what's wrong with our virtual machine, right? Um, so I, I don't regret it, but I will say that because I've been working on something for so long, one thing for so long, it was difficult for me to identify the useful 
skills that I had developed that could be applicable in other areas of the market. And that's where it gets to be like, if you can communicate very specifically about what you want to do, I have found that companies are like, no, you have skills that I can use. We just need to pivot you over here. And that'll take a little bit of time, but hopefully not much. Yeah, that part I would definitely agree with. That's something I've noticed that my business partner, I just absolutely adore in his skill set. One of the things we did when we started this company was just it was just two dudes. It was just me, two dudes in a flume log trying to figure out as what felt like a ship was sinking behind us. And when we took off, it was like, okay, what what skills do you have? And let's go to se- let's go sell those skills. You, you always use the analogy of I will be your Don King. Uh, and then he used yeah. a couple other analogies, which I won't str- share on stream, which which made me feel a little awkward and inappropriate. Um, I think he called uh, uh, himself a pimp at one point, and it was I was like, wait, so that makes me a ah uh, okay. Well, either way, so <laughs> but let, it me, was grabbing- let me flip this around on you though. Um, you know, how did you specialize into? I guess it's pen testing, right? Or do you call it something else? Yeah, I'll call pen testing. I'll finish the thought first, which was this idea of grabbing any individual and going, okay, their skill set is this, but we can also use them for these other things. Like something we've learned in being a small company is get good people, have those good people do good things, and your clients will have them do other things. We find ourselves now in like realms we never thought we would be in because we had people who excelled at certain things like getting small startups like working with healthcare startups is like a big thing that we do and it was mainly because one of our practice leads did that full time forever worked with startups going i have no idea what to do in my friend i have no idea how to build an information security program and then going there building out and maintaining it was a skill that he had so now we've started marketing that um Going back to the question, though, which was like, did I find myself um, pigeonholed in it or how did I come? What was the, your question? How did I come across pen testing as like my niche, I guess? Well, yeah, I suppose like you worked at G for a little while. Uh, what what led you? Were you doing pen testing there? What led you to pen testing in the first place? And do you feel pigeonholed into it at this point? Uh, so what led me to it? Firstly, was one, like I always go back to this idea of like ripping things apart as a kid. Like that was, I wanted to learn how things worked. And naturally I got, you started going online and you saw like flank, which was like before backtrack was a thing, which was of like phone freaking and stuff like that, where it was like, I didn't, again, I was a little too young to do that. Like not like I had exposure to the boards or anything like that, but the concept of that was fascinating. And looking at like, Figuring out, especially when you're playing video games, going like when Xbox was running like Halo and things like that, that one of the systems would actually set itself up as a server. And then you could if you unplug that all of a sudden, all the other boxes stopped connecting like that type of communication is where it started. And that's where my knowledge started growing. So I kind of like by when I chose a career path, it was hacking. It was look, I call it hacking. There's so much within hacking, but that that pen testing breaking systems. When I found out that was a thing, I was fascinated by it. I think which led me this was my uncle is in Tennessee and there's a company called Sword and Shield there, which is like a small, I don't even know if they exist anymore. They probably changed their name, but it was it was like a small uh, consulting company 
And when I was in high school, I interviewed with them and I wrote up some of the work I had done about uh, reverse engineering Unreal Tournament 2004, the first exploit I ever wrote. Uh, I sent it to them and my uncle ended up letting me come down, stay with them for an interview. And he had passed all this information off to them and they asked for an interview. And my guess is they were expecting someone who was older to show up to the interview. And here they have like this like 17 year old and junior in high school show up and they're like, oh, oh, hi, hi. In in some ways that impacted me a, a bunch of different ways because I like got pissed off because I'm like you're not hiring because of me because of my age not because of my experience and that like to this day still like triggers me in such a way of like you know age versus experience uh, either way but that that led me into pen testing that type of interaction led me to the field like this is a thing uh, my first gig I ever got was at a small company which doesn't exist anymore. And it so sounds like a dating website. Like whoever came up with the company name was like obviously wrong. It was like Intelligence Connections. They were like an ISP at one point, but it sounds like a dating website. They hired me. They're like, we're going to have you do pen testing. It's going to be amazing. And you're going to do hacking and it's going to be that. And I talked to them to find out after they hired me, they're like, we don't actually have any pen testing work. So you're going to have to build out that practice. And it's like, I'm not a salesperson. And what we really do is we sell checkpoint firewalls and we need someone to manage our help desk board. And it was like, oh, oh, okay. So my first day of work, they're like, yeah, and your hours are going to be seven to four. And they were an hour away. So I was waking up at like 5 a.m. Like, you got bait and switched. Oh, it was such a bait and switch. And the thing, the nail in the coffin, if you heard this story, I think I share it because like, Somewhere deep inside, I probably need to talk to a therapist about this one, was that was the first year I missed DEF CON. Was I had been going to DEF CON. Oh, right. I had met Bunny. I had met, I'd been going, doing, um, been going to DEF CON. And it was something that we were talking about on the Discord channel earlier again. Like, I don't know. I'll put a link down below if you guys want to join. But we were talking on Discord, like, what what is it about DEF CON that w- makes us want to go? And I missed it that year because they're like, hey, none of us have ever gone to DEF CON. They heard me talking about it, but like, we need someone to run the board for us while we're gone. And it was like, oh, okay. Like, I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm young at this point. So it's like, okay, like, I guess that's what work is. It's supposed to be a miserable experience. So I, I missed DEF CON. And like a week later, I had like the worst regret ever. Like, I should have went, I should have quit. And I turned in my resignation and left. I went and got, I, it was really easy though, once you had a job to get another job. That oh, led yeah. me. In that, oh yeah, it's like biggest thing I tell people: if even if you hate the job, just get something, and then it's easy to jump off off of it. It's harder when you don't have anything. But that led me. So like, I'm still in pursuit of penetration testing. I'm still in pursuit of doing that type of work. So I jumped off. I found a position which was in Pennsylvania. It was a hot site to a DC location in which we worked for a bunch of like three letter acronyms for the government, and that was doing pen testing. And it was a blast and it was fun, but I wanted to get back to Michigan. So going back to this is that position was very much network focused, network penetration testing. And while it was a, a niche, which I was starting to develop more and more, it was very much network focused. So now here's where it jumps to GE. Went to GE. I'm, I live in Michigan. This isn't like a secret or anything like that. And uh, I wanted to get back to it because my whole family's here. So GE had an opening. They're opening up their like, massive technology center in Michigan. 
uh, got a job, started, and it was within their software security program. Um, it was still pen testing, but it was more application focused now. So the mindset of how do I break this thing? I need to learn this thing, and then I need to find out the pieces which can be you know exploited or broken down or might have weaknesses. Moved into now from network side to application side. But then one day, here's where something just became weird. And this tell, tells me it wasn't a niche. It, it, the niche expands. One day, I walked in and we had we had been moved. We had been our whole office kind of was moved, and we were in this now enclosed space. And I know full well everyone at the entire building must have hated us because <sighs> it was right. It was the closest place to the parking lot, and the building we were in was gorgeous. It was the entire three stories. We had uh, like a full open room and it was floor to ceiling glass overlooking the lake, which was amazing. So like we have like what effectively is an executive suite, which could fit 50 people. And there was only four people on our team. So like legitimately, mm-hmm. it was great. Like at times we would like there was this huge executive table in there. And I bought like a little thing of salt and pepper, like right for the middle. So we'd have lunch and you like yell back and forth to each other, like pass the salt. Like, but what happened was we show up one day and there's this big hunk of just like metal sitting on my desk. And it was like, what the heck is this? My manager comes in. He goes, yeah, we need to figure out how to test this thing. No idea what it is. I don't know what it does. Uh, It ended up being a industrial control system, like a SCADA system, which was built for like the big, the the wind turbines. And it was like one of these things like, I don't even know what this is. And this was like before like PLC testing, SCADA system, industrial control. So none of that testing type of stuff existed in the industry yet. So being able to look at this thing, this is when I fell in love with this field because we're looking at this going, how do we, how do we test this? Like, what is this thing even vulnerable to? Because they make, how do I even turn it on? (laughs) Like, how do I even turn it on? And it was where I just like you, you really had to embrace being an idiot with this one because you're talking to the, eventually we got the people who designed this thing in the room and we talked to them like, what does this thing do? Like what would be the bad scenarios? Like they, they, because it was like all custom and everything like that, they can't like just plug in and like they wanted to make it network connected, but they can't just like, it doesn't run an operating system. So they're like, oh, we'll run like BusyBox and write, oh, but we only have this much memory. So like we'll write our own network stack. So like we asked this question, like, you know, of a, a, a server, I know if a server goes offline, that's bad with this thing. I'm like, what happens if it like goes offline? They're like, we don't care if it goes offline because it's never had network connection before. So we don't care. Like, okay, well, what, what happens if like, I, well, what, po- well, what do you care about? Like, <laughs> like, what do you care about? Like, what if I like power it off? Is that bad? They're like, yeah, as long as it reboots, it's fine. So all of a sudden we go, okay, like how do we test this thing? So we came up with this idea of the first monitor we had was like, okay, let's just have the thing shoot out a square wave. And I we're off niche right now, but I find this this kind of I'll tie it back at one point. Yeah, yeah. But let's just have it make a square la- a wave. Effectively, like let's have it hook up to a light bulb and just turn on and off. So we have at least some way of monitoring this thing. And then we hooked up a system and I pulled up HPing. And just started flooding the TCP stack and then doing bad, you know, bad timestamps to it or 
declaring a data packet and then putting way more data in it than it was expecting and doing all these manipulations, create MAC addresses that don't exist or are against standards and break. And that was a whole interesting thing because we had to like almost rewrite our own drivers to allow these things to happen. Yeah. And then like you had, we figured out, okay, this thing, when these things break, we're going to come up with this idea of layer one, layer two, layer three of a layer one crash is, or actually like there's degradation in the TCP stack, meaning it's like slow to respond. The second one is the TCP actually like goes down and crashes. The next one is the discrete monitor or like that square wave stops because that would be effectively like if this was on a like um, this same or another type of device was on like a car, uh, you know, like a car factory or something like that. This would effectively be like the thing stopping and rebooting. So, you know, degradation, TCP stack goes down, uh, the thing reboots. And then we caught this a few times with some of the devices, which was the whole thing goes down and never comes back up. Like we're corrupted <laughs> firmware or stuff like that. Oh no! And this was like amazing to me. Like this was like, it's not often like even now you get cross eight scripting, you get SQL injection. You like, we were trailblazing a new field where like it's all you, okay, you get SQL injection, you pop the shell or something like that. You're interacting with like, ultimately a system and a server. Like no, 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 nothing happens. Where all of a sudden, like you see the light stop blinking. I remember the first time it happened was like everyone was like, "You have that, you have that moment of." <laughs> oh. Oh. Yeah, I know. It was just like <laughs> perfect, and this was what made me fall in love. But it, if you notice, the story went from wet network testing to web testing to now like a big yep. long story on uh, SCADA testing. And then now I'm I'm shifting those back to like again I'm doing network testing I'm doing then there's APIs and there's all these other things so like the technology kind of like you said with virtualization it's everywhere same thing here is like the skill while it's it's pen testing it's breaking things we're now like the field has opened back up where it started with just network just application now I think I've gone far enough while it's still a niche. The niche is ginormous because everything from every web technology, every Docker containers, because Docker containers have open permissions, your um, Git repositories, you can share, you can store secrets in there that you're not supposed to. We can go general bug bounty hunting, which is still within this whole realm. So while it feels niche, I, I'm not sure if it's really a niche. Is it so let me ask, let me ask you a follow up question, and and then this is kind of a leading question, I suppose, into something uh, I've said before, which is, uh, do you think then that the field is too big? I mean, you've said before that no one can be an expert in cybersecurity, and I think what you have just described is why, um, and it's basically. At least what I've learned in, in, in at least recently, or not recently, what I've learned over the years is that the reason why you can't be an expert in cybersecurity is because there are just so many devices out there. Something's going to land on your table, like you just described, and your job, in some senses, is to learn how that thing works. Mm -hmm. Right. So and so if you have to do that as part of your job constantly, you, by definition, no one can be an expert in everything that could possibly be broken because everything 
that could possibly be broken has probably never been looked at in that fashion. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let's let's go down this path. So I competed in NSEC, like, woohoo, shout out, got second place, cold root, like the most amazing team ever. Like, and I'd say that they're, they're freaking phenomenal. Um, is we competed there. One of the challenges I came across, I did a video on this. So I'll go, if anyone cares to watch, like it's, it's on my channel is what I loved about this was it was, it was a timing attack. It was a side channel attack. This is not, this concept has existed for a long time, but the way it was implemented, typically here's high level. You have, you have a command. I'm going to send a bunch of traffic to it, and then I'm going to see, I'm going to start detecting the latency back. Does it take five milliseconds? Does it take 10 milliseconds? If I send this connection, if I send this data packet, it always comes back in five milliseconds. But if I send it with like this password, all of a sudden it takes longer. Why is it taking longer? If you look at the code, oh, it has to go longer down before it rejects it. The way you had to do this, like the actual attack was this HTTP2 specific attack where you can hide two packets. You can hide two requests in a single packet so they get to the server at the exact same time and then you can start doing your detection. The idea of side channel or this, this timing attack is not new. It's not a new concept. But I had never heard of this, this type, this attack. I had to specifically research it because of the CTF and I had to learn it. It was a new, it was brand new to me. So has the field got so big? I think you just, the longer you're in the field, you embrace the fact that like, I have no idea how to do this thing. It goes back to a quote I love from you. It's like, I have no idea how to do this, but I'll figure it out. Like, and I, I love that quote of yours because it's, it really is. I don't know how to do this, but I'll figure it out. The field is ginormous, and I think you do need to just in, embrace it, I guess, knowing that you're going to go in day to day and have no idea what you're doing. How often do you have to just research something you've never heard of before? Uh, constantly. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm walking into a new job right now, walking into a new development environment, new software, new techniques of doing things, and you know, it's it's very tough in some senses to ask the questions that you need to ask without making it sounds like, you know, why, why was XYZ design chosen can be taken as a very offensive question, I think, where it's just mm -hmm. like, I disagree with this choice. It is bad is not what I'm attempting to say, but that's the way it can be perceived, right? Um, yeah. Because what I've learned, uh, and especially digging through Linux kernel code, is that some of the design decisions for software are made for expedience, which is not necessarily the wrong decision, right? It it could just be, I need to get this thing working, otherwise my company goes under. And in that case, it's the right decision. It's a business decision. And that's when, you know, what it comes down to um, and, and kind of embracing that fact um, and not getting hung up on some of the design things maybe you disagree with. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, as in some senses, like I feel like that every time I open up a brand new code base that I've never looked at before, it's like it's a little daunting, but then I remind myself, well, I had to figure out how the memory manager in the Linux kernel worked. This probably isn't as complex as that, right? <laughs> probably. It might be. 
but yes. we'll, we'll figure it out, right? The thing you said was so interesting was uh, in it, you've opened this code base and you're like, why did you make this decision? And we forget that, like, as you said, there's not just code doesn't get written in a in a bubble like where it's like, oh, you have unlimited time. And that's what's interesting. Same thing is like when working with so many startups right now, their their care, their business ha is not flying yet. Like they're still building their business and proving out like, is this business actually viable for the future? And most businesses don't go, OK, we're going to create an app. Well, the first thing we need to do is create a DAS tool, a SaaS tool. We need to have a full-time security person. We also need a CISO. We should also align with NIST, and we should go after high trust. And, oh, maybe we're thinking about doing uh, you know, credit cards. So we need to be PCI compliant. And, oh, we're, we're going to do health benefits. So we're going to have to be HIPAA compliant too, and which is actually a law. And that's not like a we should do it, but that's actually a law where there's like fines and it's like a federal thing. Like, you have all, to do it. And all of these things, you're like, I just want to see if my business works. I don't care about all of that. And then when we come in, this is a weird perspective. Is like when we came in, it was like not with this, wow, you guys are doing everything wrong, but they've matured enough in their company that they now need to care about these things. And yeah. I find that that's a skill which I think you also get along the way, like regardless of niche or things like that is we talked about this a little bit talking about like oh you we talked about last week was oh you have the ability to communicate with people that's that's weird you're a unicorn within this field it's like no i i learned that and i think it's the same concept if we'll call it oh goodness empathetic i'm making up a word right now empathetic code review is that would that be a way of saying it uh i mean yeah maybe uh, i think that's what we talked about uh either last stream or a few streams ago so i i think that's the way to consider it it's just you know it's it's hard it's i'll say this it's hard when you have someone new and you know i'm I'm going through that process right now it comes in and basically the perception could be this person just wants to kick our puppy and mm -hmm. that's often not the case. It's they simply do not have the context of the entire business. So if you're doing code review, you may have more context as to why certain things were done certain ways and why we're all adhering to those old ways uh, as opposed to the new person coming in. Um, and that, that I think is a critical time because I've done this, you know, was at one position for years. I've watched many new people come into a project that I was more or less managing. That is a very critical time where you're going to figure out whether or not someone can work with the existing team or not. And the problem could be on either side. And I think the most important thing you can do during that time on both sides, if you're the new person or if you're the person who's receiving someone, is to simply listen and inquire and say, you know, okay, I see you made that statement, please explain and not jump to the conclusion that, you know, they're, they're here to, to kick your puppy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, maybe, maybe I hesitate to say this. Sometimes puppies deserve to be kicked, but, uh, <laughs> in, but in a strictly anecdotal analogous yes. way. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I, I joke about that because I got up, uh, I, I was at a conference giving a talk about, you know, I was talking with a bunch of people who do modeling and simulation in the sense that they're like trying to model the physics of something or trying to model um, how a, a large amount of equipment interacts with each other without having the actual interactions. And I'm up there from a you know cybersecurity perspective saying that, hey, you, you guys 
uh, are not really that much different than we are because what you're trying to do is trying to test this large open space of what happens when these things interact together. And what I'm trying to do is take one of those things and test it uh, in the sense of, you know, it was never intended to be used this or that way. Um, ultimately, these two things, these two ways of testing complex system of systems tend to get pushed off towards the end of a development cycle. And both can be perceived as I'm here to kick your puppy and tell you what you did wrong. When in reality is, it's like, well, I'm really here to determine what the risk uh, you know, mm -hmm. what the risk profile is for the overall system and what things we may have to, you know, what critical things we may have to mitigate in order to make it work. Uh, from a software development perspective, that kind of testing uh, perception or that, that kind of idea of I need to write tests earlier in the process rather than later in the process sometimes gets... Uh, gets waved off in the uh, in the process of establishing a business, I would say. Yep. And I don't necessarily think that's the the worst decision. You know, uh, in a lot of cases, speed to market is very critical to the, you know, establishing a business and then coming back in. Um, you know, large corporations, I think, have uh, one, an easier time doing that type of test-driven and design-driven development from the start. And two, probably have, in my opinion much more responsibility to do that in the first place because they have the opportunity to do it i the whole idea of test driven coding is fascinating to me the fact that you build the test case first and then go like here is the expectation i'm going to go now code it so it delivers that that is it makes perfect sense but my gosh does it feel like slow that you're like, okay, I'm going to build, build out all the test cases and then build my code to go check against those things. Feels like it would slow down, but my gosh, does it make so much sense as I've gotten farther into coding? Um, most colleges in the U S actually teach some level of test driven development. And then everyone who gets one of those degrees rapidly learns that that's not how most places work. Um, it, at least, at least in my experience and from the people that I know, very few people engage in actual test-driven development where you write the tests and then you write mm -hmm. the thing. In many cases, because that only works if you're able to define the input very specifically, right? The input to your program. And sometimes as soon as you open up a socket, and you have to take in a packet and you have to take in random data, you have to be able to parse that data to determine whether or not it's valid input or not. And so that's like, that's where it starts to break down because it's like, well, how much time do I spend testing every single corner case I can come up with versus writing the actual rest of the API and the functionality of the system? Like if I never make it out of that input parser, then I never actually make the thing that I'm trying to sell or trying to accomplish. So that's where a lot of the the bugs that we'll often find, you know, buffer overflows, things like that, that's where a lot of those come from, where the, you just skip that step because that step is actually, it's hard. You know, the, I, I would say that um, computer science programs around the nation uh, sell test-driven development as the correct way to do things. But you're absolutely correct. There is an overhead to development that is not uh, 
absorbable by a lot of businesses uh, when you are very, very strict about it. Now, you, you should probably backfill it and reassess your software, but everyone knows there's no such thing as prototype code. It's all... <laughs> <laughs> it all turns into it pushing to to production eventually. Um, so, but yeah, I think piece of this though of too is you like right now. Often we use this this thing. Like right now you're doing nothing. Anything above nothing is something. So let's yeah. go do something. And I think that same thing can be said about whether it's it's testing or test driven development or security or especially within pen testing right now, you're not doing anything with your software. So like, let's do so you're not doing any security testing. So let's do so anything about no nothing is something. Let's go do something. I think this is where it comes back down to niche, which is right now. I don't think you necessarily have to start the field with a niche. You have to be driving towards some sort of goal and kind of meander around a little bit. And I think it's like oftentimes it's like, okay, right now it's going to be overwhelming this decision of what do I want to specialize in? I think you naturally kind of find your specialization. You find that realm of what do I like doing? What is profitable or what, what, what do I like doing? What can I find a job doing? And then find that, that middle thing. It might not be a perfect fit, but you can find it. I think that's, that, that's, that's spinning it back. Maybe a little loose, but at a certain point is, Right now, I don't think if you're struggling with a niche that you necessarily need to go, I need to go find the niche. I think it's getting exposure and finding the things that you enjoy doing. Would you think, think what advice would you give? I think you'll know it when you see it. Um, I, I, you know, it took me six years. I'll say what it took me four years while I was in the Navy to be able to recognize that that's that thing that I want to be. And then it took me you know, a couple more years beyond that to go that that's the thing I want to work on. And then eventually, uh, I burnt out on that thing and I was like, I need a new thing to go work on. And it took me eight months of looking around the market to go that I'll work on that. I'm mm -hmm. hold on. I need to ask a bunch of questions about it. Okay. Yes. I'll work on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so like, I think you'll know it when you see it. And to some extent, you know, trust your intuition and also take some risks, right? Like mm -hmm. take some risks on something you don't know and be like, I don't understand how that works, but I think I'll figure it out. Yeah. I think it's the best place to end it right there, which is, I don't know, but I'll figure it out because I have no evidence to the contrary for anything I've done in my past up to this point and I'll figure it out. So with that, thanks for watching and hack on.